Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, CEO and founder of Project Purple. And today we're on the phone with Eddie Dominguez. Eddie, how are you? Thank you for joining us on the Project Purple Podcast. I'm doing great, Dino. Thank you for having me. No problem. It's our pleasure, Eddie. And I've got to say, I know you're, you're calling in from the Boston area and there's a big game this weekend. So I, I know your, your thoughts are probably on, on the game in a couple of days. Yeah, I'm actually... Uh I didn't tell you this, but I'm actually in Florida. Oh, even better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know what? I found out from my wife that she had set up a return flight for Sunday at noontime. Needless to say, he changed the flight. We're not going to head back to Boston until Monday. Uh, you're smart. You're smart. You know, the weather here in New England, I, I'm sure you're following, is supposed to be brutally cold. So go figure the Patriots have a home game, you know, and it's going to be like, I think it's not even supposed to be a high of 30 on Sunday. And I think there was talk of some weather coming in, which I know has happened in the past. But, uh, you know, I, I think maybe it's the Patriot gods are planning the weather right for that game on Sunday. Yeah, and I, and I think the Patriots uh, are going to need the football gods to follow them if they intend to make it to the Super Bowl. I don't think this year's team is as strong as it has been in the past. But then again, I'm a true believer that in Bill we trust. And I think uh, I think Mr. Belichick will figure something out. Yeah, he's, uh, he's pretty good. So if history does uh, provide a lesson into the future, I mean, their history has been pretty good. So you can't count them out. It should be a great, great game. Well, thanks. Yeah, for- and like like you said, the weather, the weather will probably help, you know, help them considering they're playing you know, the, the charges. So we'll see what happens. You never know. You never know. I, I have to be biased. And I will tell you this, we did something this year with the NFL and we had the, a couple of the San Diego, uh, I keep saying San Diego, but they are now the LA chargers, even though they're technically right. not playing in LA, they're playing in Carson, California, which is right outside of LA. But uh, we were really fortunate. We had three players select project purple as their charity of choice for the my cause my cleats in the nfl this year and so uh, i'm kind of torn a bit you know living here in new england you know my whole life i've always kind of rooted for the home team because i think that's important but then also the support that the chargers organization as a whole gave project purple this year and helped bring awareness to the disease so i'm torn you know so i I think you know when all is said and done uh i'll be happy for whoever wins the game on sunday not to pick a side but uh, hopefully my wife is not listening to this and my kids because they're diehard <laughs> New England Patriot fans. Well, now, now that you said that, obviously, um, you know, uh, feeling the way I do about pancreatic cancer and you know, awareness. And so obviously that, that sounds like a great bunch of guys and, and I thank them for it. It doesn't mean, though, that I'm going to cheer for them. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. You'll get in trouble with the boys when you come back home. There's no question about that. <laughs> well, uh, I'm sure we could sit here and talk about uh, the NFL for a long, long time. And we might actually talk a lot about Major League Baseball here in a couple minutes. But for our audience at home, Eddie, 
I would love, and I, you know, your son was on our Chicago Marathon team, so we'll give the audience at, at home uh, just a little bit of a tease into your story. Um, we were fortunate to meet you and the rest of your family, your other son, your grandkid, um, your daughter-in-law, and some other folks there with the family in Chicago in October. You know, hearing your story firsthand was just so inspiring, and I, I knew I wanted to get you on the podcast. So again, appreciate you taking the time. But for those listening at home that don't know about your story, um, that are hearing your name for the first time, why don't we give you some time here? And, and as I tell our guests always, they can tell their story in five minutes, in two minutes, or you can take 25 minutes. The mic is yours, and we'd love to uh, share your story with pancreatic cancer with our audience at home. Yeah, well, um, I was born in Cuba. Um, I came to the United States when I was 10 years old. Um, I became a Boston police uh, officer in 1979, worked uh, as a narcotics detective from 1986 to 2008, assigned to the FBI drug unit the last 11 years. I did a lot of undercover work. And then uh, while I was doing that uh, as a part-time job, I was working for Major League Baseball as as the eyes and ears of the commissioner's office at Fenway Park from 1999. 2008. And when I retired in 2008, I joined Major League Baseball, where I worked in the Department of Investigations. Uh, I was one of two co-agents in the Biogenesis investigation, which is the investigation that ended up suspending Alex Rodriguez for one year of baseball, along with uh, 12 other players. Um, I was let go in 2014, on April 28th. Uh, of 2014 and then as I was you know thinking and planning as what I was going to do with the rest of my life after spending you know close to 36 years in law enforcement in one way or another um, I received the news in just before um, July uh, 1st of uh, 2014 that um I had come down with pancreatic cancer. Um, how that came about was uh, the weekend before uh, I was going to the bathroom and I thought I was urinating blood. Mm. Um, so I kept it to myself, foolishly enough. Uh, didn't tell my wife for a couple of days thinking, you know, whatever, it'll go away. And it didn't. And then I, my, um, the way I was eating uh, wasn't as usual. I, I wasn't as, as hungry after a couple of days, so I, I shared with her, and obviously right away, her being the brain in the family said, well, we got to go see a doctor right away. Um, and we did, and Dr. Leslie Fang at the Mass General Hospital, within, you know, 36 hours uh, after having some testing done, brought us in, had his secretary call us at about 6 o'clock in the morning, and usually, you know, my primary care doctor secretary calls you at six in the morning. It's not good news. No. Um, she said, the doctor wants you to come in. And I said, when? He says, how soon can you get in here? And I said, well, I can go right now. He says, yeah, bring somebody with you. So we ended up in his office. And Dr. Fang um, is an incredible doctor at the Mass General Hospital. Mm-hmm. But um, some people don't like his bedside manners. I do because I'm the type of guy who who likes to hear it straight. Uh, And he sat there and I warned my wife when we went in. I said, "Um, be ready because whatever it is, 
as you can imagine, it's not going to be good, but he's going to be blunt. And I'm sure as, as he speak to us, he's going to tell us what he's doing to, to try to fix it. So we got there, sure enough, Dr. Feng welcomed us in this office, and he was working away at his computer. And he just looked up for a second and said hello to us and said, Ed, I got good news and bad news. And I said, okay, doc. And he said, the bad news is you have pancreatic cancer. Now, at the time, I knew very little about pancreatic cancer. Um, and the first thing he said is, you are going to be tempted to go on the internet. Don't do it. It's not good. You know, what you're going to see is not good. But, but what, um, what we think we have is that we caught it early enough where your tumor was blocking um, your bile duct. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, what you're urinating is bile. It's not blood. And, and I said, okay. He goes, uh, the good news is that I'm emailing Dr. Carlos Fernandez, uh, surgeon at the Mass General, um, teaches at Harvard, um, Mexican-born, and I look at him, I worship him as a god now, but yeah. he, uh, he said, I'm making the arrangement to go there. Uh, and the doctor took me, uh, I'll never forget it, It was he had a surgery, emergency surgery at July 4th, 4th of July. The hospital was absolutely empty, with the exception of him and the oncologist, Dr. Theodore Hong, who had just, they had just done the surgery. Went in there and we talked to both of them and they were uh, very uh, uplifting, um, if, if that could be a word used with pancreatic cancer, but they said, uh, we think that we caught it early enough and we want you to get uh, on a medical study that Dr. Hong is running. And her and I looked at each other and we talked uh, a little further with Dr. Fernandez as to, you know, what, you know, this was all about, what pancreatic cancer was all about. And he explained it to us and uh, basically said, you know, the quicker we can get this done, probably the better. He said, but um, history has shown us that even with with the Whipple surgery, which is what he was going to perform, um, you know, the rates aren't all that great. And what we're doing with these medical studies is try to figure out ways, you know, to to make individuals who have the Whipple surgery, uh, the small percentage that can have it, um, the surgery to work at a, you know a, at a better rate. So after consulting with uh, Dr. Theodore Hong and Dr. Fernandez, we asked if we could have like the weekend to think about it, and they said yes. Uh, fortunately enough. My son, who, Andrew, who ran in the marathon, and you met, mm-hmm. uh, his girlfriend at Wesleyan, father, was a well-known surgeon in New York uh, who actually operated on Patrick Swayze. And so I asked Andrew if he could contact his, his ex-girlfriend, um, and they called the doctor. And the doctor had heard about Dr. Hong's study, and he recommended that I go with the study. So I did, um, and the study is, and I still take the medication, uh, it's called, the medication I take is called hydroxychloroquine. Hmm. Don't ask me to spell it, please, Dino. <laughs> uh, but um, it used to, it was used on malaria patients uh, way back in the day, um, and they have found out through studies um, that it seems to retard, and in some cases, um, kill 
me pancreatic cancer. So I I started taking those pills. Unfortunately, I came across some publications where when right away when they try to open my bile and they put a bile duct, uh, unfortunately, I developed pancreatitis as a result yep. and also uh, some blood infections. So that retarded the whole process. Um, luckily enough, Dr. Hong made some adjustments in the study where they kept me in the study. Uh, but the plan of the study was to, to have not a lot, but some radiation done. And then soon thereafter, after a period of taking uh, the hydro- hydroxychloroquine, Dr. Fernandez was going to perform the operation. But what happened as a result of of the blood disorders and the pancreatitis is that my pancreas swelled. They thought it, it had gone down enough where they did the operation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Fernandez, uh, you know, I came to the hospital with Mass General with my whole family, and Dr. Fernandez told them to take about eight hours for the surgery. And my wife tells me the story that after two hours, um, he came down, and, you know, right away she panicked. Um, and the doctor explained that he had opened me, and when he opened me, he realized my pancreas was so swollen that if he had continued with the surgery, I probably would have died in the operating table. Oh, my God. And um, I can't speak for other doctors or other professions, but, you know, having done undercover work with uh, drug dealers from, from all <laughs> over the world, um, I know that at times you have to make a decision uh, that's life or death. Yeah. And for, for somebody, okay, to be in the middle of something like that and make that split-second decision to close me up, I'm not quite sure how many, how many surgeons would have done that. And, and for that, I'm forever grateful uh, of Dr. Fernandez. Um, but what happened as a result of that, they had to wait to, you know, for my, the swelling of my pancreas to go down. So at that point, to make sure, try to keep it from spreading, I received, you know, massive chemotherapy and radiation for about a three-month period uh, until the swelling had gone down, which luckily it did. And Dr. Fernandez took a second shot, and here I am, you know. Um, thanks to the Master General Hospital, the great doctors, my wife, um, and my family, I'm here today to talk to you, Dino. So after the surgery, three months uh, after the chemotherapy, did you have to do any treatment post after, or uh, was it just the surgery and then you were good to go? Yeah, no, all the all the radiation and chemo was actually done before. before yeah. And the reason and the reason it was done before, as I just said, is because they were scared. Yeah. Was, were we that it would spread? As you yep. know, that's yeah, very common with yep. the disease. Um, so yeah, so all of it uh, was done before, um, and then after that, um, you know, they they watch me every six months, and there's been a couple of small setbacks, but nothing to to cry over. Um, so I've been I've been very lucky, uh, very fortunate, and you know, and I'm glad that you know you're doing these podcasts as as we have spoken before and before. We started taping. I think it's a great idea. Um, I always welcome speaking 
uh, to anybody, whether it be a family member or actually somebody who's been diagnosed. But I always say, because I found um, early on when, when I was diagnosed that, you know, everybody doesn't get the same diagnosis as I do. And obviously when the Whipple surgery uh, is not something that's available to you as a patient, then, you know, it's, it's basically a matter of time, unfortunately. So I found out that some people don't like to discuss those things. So I, I, I don't like pushing myself on people, but I make myself available. But I think a podcast such as this, it could be somebody like me who didn't want to talk to anybody at the time I was going through it, but maybe listening to somebody else without having to answer questions uh, or be put on the spot. I think this is something that's very helpful, and I congratulate you for doing this. We're just telling your story, Eddie. It's it's a pleasure to be able to be in that position to do that. So, uh, the, you know, I, like I said before, when we started recording, I feel like I have the best job in the world, and uh, we're just helping to tell the story. And like I, like you said, hopefully someone listens to this and is inspired by it, whether they've been touched by the disease potentially, like your son, you know, to, to get involved, whether it's with us or some other group, or uh, it's someone who's sitting, you know, where you were sitting back in July of 2014. Question for yeah, you. Uh, were you... Yeah, were, not, 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 only, not only my son, Dino, but my whole family... We're very much involved now in fundraising, and I think I told you back in Chicago that there's a family that yep. uh, Granera Scary, it's called the Granera yep. Scary Fund here in, in Massachusetts, and how I got affiliated with them is that my brothers and sisters that I was working with before I retired at the FBI um, found out that they were doing a, a road race, and as, as a team of about 40 of them, they ran in it with shirts with my name on it. That's and awesome. I was, at the time, I had lost about 40 pounds Ugh. and was very weak, but uh, there was no way that I was gonna miss this. I didn't run in it. I have subsequently run in it, but I showed up and then, you know, Nancy, who's the person that runs for the family, for the Ganera Scary Fund, uh, yep. met me and she was so warm and so nice to me and uplifted me, uh, even though her sister had passed away. Uh, she had also been treated by Dr. Fernandez, and you know she she just made me so comfortable. And from there, I my wife and I looked at each other and said, "Well, I guess for the rest of our lives, somehow, somewhere, we'll be affiliated to the Narrow Scary Fund." And we are. That's awesome. I love that. I love hearing how they, those guys rallied around. It's really, truly a brotherhood. And that was one of my questions here that I have for you. Um, but before I get to that, were you ever staged at, at uh, Mass General Hospital? Did they ever give you, did any, anywhere along that journey, did they ever give you or your wife, your family, a staging of the cancer? No, they did not. Okay. Question for you here within that, going back to when um, you originally, you said you were urinating blood. So you had no other symptoms at the t at that time when you were like abdominal pain, weight loss, diarrhea, uh, anything else? Or was it just really just the, the color of the urine that kind of, you know, was like, oh my God, something's not right? Yeah, that, that was it, you know. And, that's yeah, so that's amazing. That's a question that a lot of the doctors uh, would ask me, even when they, you know, when they start pressing yeah. on the abdomen, they would say, does that hurt, does that hurt? I would say, no, it doesn't. 
and they would just look at each other like, how, how can that be? Um, but it didn't. I never had any pain, you know, leading, leading up to the diagnosis. I, I hadn't lost weight. Um, I got to tell you that after telling my wife that I thought I was urinating, she did notice that, you know, my skin was getting a little gray. Um, but that came after the, you know, thinking that I was urinating blood. Uh, yeah. It was bile. But, but yeah, I had no, none of the symptoms that you usually hear about. I had none of them. So fascinating to me. And I think that's something that is so scary. Not to like put the fear in anyone listening, but I, I think the one thing, you know, last year we had a lot of survivors and fighters on our podcast. And Sam, there were so many people that had so many different symptoms. I mean, from, you know, just off the top of my head of, you know, the flutter in the stomach from one of our survivors to uh, the survivor who had like really diarrhea for like two weeks and and didn't have any other symptom and then to hear you say like you know just from the urinating of what what you thought was blood but which was bile is just so fascinating to me and then there's other people that do have the atypical symptoms of weight loss and jaundice and um, you know abdominal pain or lower back pain it's just really fascinating and I think that's where I think Eddie the power in sharing your story is so powerful beyond what you and I and here at Project Purple, what we can imagine, because who knows, man, there might be someone out there that goes to the bathroom and urinates, you know, a different color than what's normal. And maybe listening to this podcast is the reason why they realize that they have something going on that's not right and they don't have any other symptoms, you know, and and naturally people would play that off as like, oh, well, you know, maybe there's something going on with my kidneys or, you know, I'm not hydrating enough or, you know, something else is going on and not necessarily thinking pancreatic cancer. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Like I said earlier, I just think that this is a great thing that you're doing. I, you know the and you know, through people like you, uh, I see it all the time now where uh, people are much more aware of the disease um, and and the fact that it could sneak up on anybody at any time unannounced and in most cases unfortunately too late. Um, di- the diagnosis is too late and you know they're working the doctors and the scientists are working and hopefully you know, people like you who do so much for the cause and, you know, donate so much money for the cause uh, will be around when there's a cure for it. Uh, We can only pray for that. Well, we're pushing, we're pushing and stories like yours and many others inspire us every day to do what we do. I I sincerely mean that. So I'm going to just shift gears, but stay on the focus here. You've had an impressive background work-wise. I'm sure you've seen your share of some crazy things and dealt with some really, really mean, nasty people. And then, you know, naturally being involved in the Major League Baseball and the whole A-Rod thing. And I'm sure uh, that was not, you probably weren't the most light guy in the room, let's say, uh, at that point. How does that compare, Eddie, to when a doctor says, like, do do you feel like, almost in a way, like, I, I feel like, your line of work that you did maybe somewhat prepared you for this pancreatic cancer diagnosis in a way. Because being a being I, a narcotic I, cop, being a I Boston wish, cop, I wish, I wish that was the case. You know, I I think that nothing 
nothing can prepare you for that day when you, when you hear that. And yeah. when you become aware of what it is, or what the disease is, I think nothing uh, prepares you for that. And, and you're right, I, I went through many a time, you know, found myself in situations where, like I said earlier, it was a life or death type thing. I've been involved in shootings and stuff like that. But, yeah. Um, nothing. I mean, that that's those things happen like in a split second, and it's you know your common sense and your reaction that that either makes you or breaks you. But in a case like this, you feel so helpless because it's out of your hands. Um, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, you can fight and not give up, which is something that I highly. Uh, recommend to anybody in any situation is to never give up. Um, but I, um, yeah, no, it did not <laughs> to get to the gist of the answer. It did not prepare me. I don't think it prepared me. I know for a fact it didn't prepare my family. Um, and more, more than anything is, is the fact that you have to share this with your loved ones. And, you know, you feel for them so much in a situation where you know, the police work, I almost never told anybody about what I was doing, especially my family members. There's no need for them to know, especially when I came home. So they know I was home. That's a good thing. That's the most important thing. I didn't have to thing, go yeah. over whatever it is that I went through that day. But in these circumstances, I mean, you've got to go home and, and you got to tell, you know, your kids and you got to see them crying and you got to tell your parents and, and your siblings and your friends and and I think in my case, that was the hardest thing for me to deal with. Um, those first, I want to say those first 12 to 24 hours, to me, were the hardest. Um, just, you know, accepting the fact that, you know, we're mortals. Um, and then, you know, having to tell my loved ones, um, it was very hard, very hard. That was the hardest thing, without a doubt was those first 12 to 24 hours. After that, in my case, I just, you know, like I just said, I, I looked at my wife, I said, okay, well, if if I'm gonna go out, I'm gonna go out fighting. And, you know, she was all for it. And that's what we did, we fought. So was there, it was really that moment after the first 14 hours that you decided like, hey, no matter how hard this gets, I would imagine though that you probably got tested pretty hard after you woke up from surgery that first time when Dr. Fernandez wasn't able to do uh, the Whipple that, that first time. I imagine that was probably gut-wrenching or a kick to the gut, I should say. i tell you what, it was, it was to my wife. There's a funny story that goes along with that. And we just, we become very good friends with the Fernandez family. They're, they're an incredible family. As a matter of fact, they just had us over their house for the, the holidays. And Carlos has nine children. Oh my! I mean, he's just—he's just a fantastic human being. They're very religious, and they're just—I can't say enough about it. But um, one of the one of the things that you know is a result of all this is the friendship that we developed with with the doctor, um, and you know we cherish that. So, do you um, routinely you're getting checked up every six months? Is now your protocol? I am. We go in. We go in every six months. Um, and you know they they do the testing and um, you know and that you know right now um, it, that's that's the time when like the day usually it doesn't happen until like the day before 
I go to the testing because I one of the things that Fernandez told us right away is you know take everything a day at a time That's and it. I tried to live my life that way since the diagnosis and so I don't I don't plan that far ahead and I I you know welcome every day every minute and try to enjoy it as much as I can um, but the day before I know I'm going to have the, the test results, not so much even the test as the test results. I got to tell you that, you know, <laughs> you get this in your stomach um, and, you know, because you you never know what the answer is going to be. So that, that's right now, that's, that's, I would say that after that first 12 to 24 hours of that diagnosis, I'd say that that probably comes in second. Um, and I lost track earlier of the question you asked me, but it, as I was answering this question, I, I just came back to me and you, you asked me the question about, you know, that first surgery and the time. Yeah. And, yeah. It was, uh, my wife, and I was about to tell you that, that it was a funny story and then I lost track. But, uh, my wife who was downstairs, as I told you earlier, after two hours and the doctor came and told her, said to the, the doctor Fernandez, um, what I, you definitely have to see him. You have to be the person that tells him that this happened you know, <laughs> before we walk in the room. I, I, because he's going to think that everything is done. Done, yeah. You know, that the surgery's over. So sure enough, you know, as you can imagine, a surgeon's probably running around doing whatever he's got to do. But my wife comes in the room thinking that Dr. Fernandez had already spoken to me. <laughs> and yeah, and I wake up. And I look at her and I smile and I said, I guess I'm still here. And she looks at me and I said, it's all over. And she like, she couldn't even speak. She just like looking at me, she goes, did Dr. Fernandez speak to you yet? I said, no. Just then Dr. Fernandez walks in the room and she gives him a look. I call it the Malorquia, she's Italian. Yeah, the Malorquia. Yeah. <laughs> And, and Dr. Fernandez stops, like this is world-renowned doctor, just like he knew. And she looks at him, she says, you didn't speak to him? And he was like, took a step back and he goes, I just talked to you outside. And then they went outside, <laughs> her and him went outside. And she, you know, she read on the riot act. Um, and you know, and to, to this day, every, every time I see him, we have a laugh about that. Uh, but no, that didn't, that really after that, you, the question was whether I was affected by that. Yeah, was that rock? Like, and did it rock it. you a little bit, or was it, you know? Um, just the, the, not not immediately. The thoughts of later after that, the thoughts of so the fact that, as we all know, that this this can spread, um, that concerned me. But going through the surgery and having to go through it again, you know, I had read up on the doctor and I knew that I couldn't get any better, so I I wasn't concerned with that. I, obviously, I was concerned with the cancer spreading, um, but yeah, no, I still say uh, if I had to rank them, I would say the first 12, 24 hours were the worst, and then after, followed by um, probably you know every every time I got I have to go take the test, no matter when it was, whether it was during that time period before I got the surgery or whether it is now. Um, but I would say that those, and then, yeah, and then that first surgery when, uh, and you know, and all the, the chemo and uh, all that stuff that, 
you know, beats, beats the crap out of you. Yeah, that, that wasn't fun. But, you know, whatever. Uh, it is what it is. And you're here today talking to us, so it, it all has worked out. And, um, you know, I... I God bless, yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's not easy by any means for anyone listening at home to go through what you go through. But I, I think the common theme with all the survivors we talked about is they've always accepted whatever it is. You know, bring it. Like, if it's going to mean I'm going to be here, then, you know, I'll do it. And um, regardless of what, you know, the pain and the nausea and the neuropathy and everything else that's associated with it, you just find a way to get through it. Well, I appreciate you giving us that background, um, you know, on all, and it's so fascinating. And I just took some notes. I mean, there's, there's something here that's very common, Eddie, and a lot of patients that we talk to um, is the trust in their doctors and their physicians. And this is what we preach day in, day out is like you have to have, you know, especially with surgery, you know, you have to be 100% committed to that person. Because you're putting, as you said, your life in that guy's hands, you know, and he's the reason why. And, and I can just, we can just hear in your voice the admiration and the love and the trust that you have for Dr. Fernandez. And he's a phenomenal surgeon. He's amazing. I've been fortunate to meet him years ago up at an event up in Boston. He was speaking and, and he was receiving an award for his dedication to the disease. And we need more clinicians and surgeons like him in the country and other centers, you know. And, and that's the other thing that I wrote here is, you know, and I think. I think we are blessed um, for a variety of reasons of where we live here geographically in the country. Um, you know, you've got Boston, which has Mass General, which has a great team up there. You've got New York City, which is not far, which is drivable. So for us here in Connecticut, I always said to uh, to patients here locally, and th- there are some other places. Um, here that have some experts but when you look at high volume centers and this is really critical i think for those listening and we help access to that there's other groups that provide access to these high volume centers but that is really the key man like you really have to get into a high volume center with this disease so that from the surgeon to the oncologist to the research like they've got the whole team of scientists and doctors to help patients beat this thing and that is really critical and that's where you find i think a dr fernandez you know you're going to find a doctor of that caliber at a high volume center he's not going to be in your rural setting at a community hospital and i'm not trying to beat up these community hospitals but i think the point here is that this disease is so specific it's so unique that unless you're going to see someone who's doing this 24 hours a day seven days a week 365 days a year that it is an injustice, you know, to to not try to get to a high volume center. It truly is. I, I truly believe that. And if there was anything I could do back with my dad is I would have dragged his butt to a high volume center in New York or Boston. And, you know, I, that was the one battle I didn't fight. That's, that's, that's a great point that you make. And I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I, I think, I, again, uh, I mean, obviously, like you said, you know how I feel about Dr. Fernandez. Yeah. I think, he, like, you, like, like you said, it's, it's, you have to go to a place that does this a lot because you're 100% right. It's, it's so specific and it's, it's, it's such, a, such a strange and deadly disease that you'd be absolutely, you know, doing yourself a disfavor if, if you didn't go to a place that does this on a constant basis. You really would be. 
Yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt. And, I, and you know, for all the complaining that people do in this part of the country, we've got really good access to health care. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're right on both counts. Yeah. 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 We got a lot of complainers and it just started because the weather's turning cold. So, you know, up here in New England. So there'll be there'll be more complaining. Everyone will be thinking about summer. And then when it's too hot, they're complaining. It's too hot. Yeah. Yeah. My Duncan, I can't get my Duncan ice. I get, you know, the Duncan cold or whatever. You know, you can't make everyone happy, I guess. No, you can't. No, you can't. Next question for you is how has pancreatic cancer changed or affected your life from today? And let's say we'll go back to, I'm going to say uh, May of 2014 before you started to urinate and have symptoms of the disease. I tell you, and I'm not sure that uh, too many of the people you've interviewed are going to tell you what I'm about to tell you, but. Believe it or not, I, I, I count it as a blessing that I was diagnosed. I had just, um, not just, but a few years prior, I had gone through a divorce. And uh, I actually remarried uh, right after my surgery. But I have, I've been living with my wife now for a while. And I had, you know, my two boys from the prior uh, marriage and Andrew and Christopher. And then Donna and I have a girl. And then this daughter has three boys uh, from another marriage. And the, the whole, you know, trying to get that family unit together was difficult, as you can imagine. And, yeah. you know, um, believe it or not, the, the diagnosis and going through what we went through as a family uh, just made us together. Um, and we became one. And um, I, I think back to that. And that's why I say it was a blessing. And then not only that, it, I've always been somewhat religious, but maybe not as much as I should have been. Um, and it just, my awareness of God, I, I, there's not a day that I, I don't think of my God. And there's not a day that I, don't, I go without praying. Um, just thanking uh, my God for, for everything in life of total. So I would say that biggest effect that the cancer had on me is, you know, bringing my family together um, and then, you know, my relationship with God. I think those those are, are the two things that have changed dramatically as a result of this disease. Um, I mean, the going through the surgeries and the chemo and all that stuff, hey, whatever. I mean, you know, it's like you said earlier, it comes to a point where you just say, let's go, let's do it, whatever it takes. And you do that, but the, the little things that, that that came out of it in a positive way, you know, me meeting Dr. Hong, who I had a great affection from, the oncologist, and Dr. Fernandez, and and the people that I've met along the way, um, either relatives of individuals that passed away and fought, you know fought the fight, but uh, luckily for them, they you know they couldn't win. Um, those 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 moments, those people, uh, my friends, like you said earlier, my law enforcement friends, my my friends that came out of the woodwork and prayers and you know showing up to to raise money and I mean those are all incredible things uh, that have happened as a result of a you know obviously a, a very deadly disease, but um, those are things that that I remember most. Uh, not so much you know going through. Uh, the battle, but the, the good things that came out of it, uh, and plenty of good things have come out of it. And I just hope that 
your listeners that you know uh, listen to this podcast um, can get from you know from from my word can take some positive things out of a negative, and obviously it is a negative. Um, but I mean, you got to fight through it and and don't give up, as Jim Belvano put it so so well in his uh, speech: "Don't give up, don't ever give up." That's so powerful, Eddie. I, I think everything that you just said, and I, and I will tell you this, um, we have heard the blessing before. And um, so you're not alone. Uh, I, I don't mean to steal your thunder, but you, you do say something that's so profound, though, is that, you know, bringing people together in times of crisis. And, you know, I, I think you, you've seen that, you know, you were involved with Major League Baseball when 9-11 happened, right? Like, what was the first thing, you know? And then, you know, you were up in Boston, um, not with the police, but, you know, when the Boston Marathon bombings happened, I remember, you know, New York was playing Boston and it just united the community, you know, and, and the, the Patriots, you know? And so, you know, it, and, you know, I think anytime there's diversity and challenge and strife and in and, and life, um, to have that happen and to bring people and to, and to become something positive is truly so powerful. And there's so many negatives about this disease. I mean, the disease itself is one big negative connotation, right? Like no matter you look up on the internet, I mean, yesterday, you know, we're, we're recording this in early January and, you know, American Cancer Society released their, you know, latest findings on all cancers. And yesterday it was announced that you know, pancreatic cancer hasn't increased and it hasn't decreased in terms of survivability. So it's relatively stayed the same the last like two and a half, three, well, two years. I think it actually goes into three years. Um, but, you know, now the cases of the disease have gone up uh, to like 56,000 this year. So, you know, just... Just that as a whole, you know, the first thing is is got this negative connotation. So to find these positives in life when you are hit with the most negative thing is really, really powerful. So I appreciate you sharing that. And I think religion is, you know, my mom and dad used to say never talk politics and religion. And we're not going to go into which faith. But I, I think believing in God, whether that's Allah or Allah or, you know, Judaism, uh, Islam, Catholicism, you know, whatever faith you have um, is so important and so critical because we all die. No one lives forever, regardless of cancer or anything else. We all eventually will die and have to uh, go to a, another life or whatever that may be and whatever you believe in. But I think having some sort of faith, whatever that looks like and feels like is so important. So I appreciate you sharing that. that that's really powerful stuff. And hopefully the listeners at home are, are taking that um, not lightly, but really listening to what you just said, because that's truly powerful and what you just had to say to everyone. Yeah, and that's that's funny. That it, it brings back a memory as far as religion goes. And you're right, it's religion, politics, that, that subjects that. Yeah, they're almost taboo, right? In this in this day and age, yeah. like you know, it's so taboo to bring it up. But I think it's important because I think, regardless of the faith, you know that that you know or what you believe in, like faith is so important. It is so important. And I don't, yeah, you know, like, I don't care. Like, I don't care if you believe in whatever you believe, but have something, have some faith, have some backing, some, some idea, you know, positive ideas and, um, you know, that make up your faith as long as it's positive, you know, and, and I know there's some I, people that believe in I some negatives, agree. but. I can't agree with you more, Dino, as far as, you know, as, as what you just said. And um, it brings me back to our 
soon after I was diagnosed, I had lost a bunch of weight. My my wife owns a juice bar at an LA Fitness in, in Boston, and there's, there's a gentleman that, who we have become very friendly with, and he came up to me when he found out, and he said, you know, Eddie, how you doing? I'm doing well. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm hanging in there. And he says, do you mind if I pray to my God for you? His name is Mohammed, uh, and my friend's name is Mohammed. Yeah. And I said, Mohammed, I'll take any prayer, <laughs> any God, and yeah. absolutely a hundred percent. So, like you just said earlier, whatever it is that you believe in, and and it's you know just the fact that he came up to me and asked me that meant the world to me, and I've never forgotten it. And he now has a young boy that's going through something, and I can guarantee you um, that I say prayers for him every night. Uh, for his son, but I mean, it just—it's it, a positive thing. It's like you said, it's not—it's not about who you believe in. It's you know, it's that you believe in something that's good. Yeah. Um, and, I, and no matter what your God is, I—I I would hope that everybody would believe in a God that's good. Absolutely, absolutely. There's so there's so much power in faith and believing in something that's positive, and you know uh, it, it's so powerful. So hopefully the folks listening at home that might be going through this are, are listening that with an open heart and and really taking that to, um, you know, to really believe in something positive and have faith in whatever God and whoever the God may be or whatever, you know, they idolize. I'm, my next question is today, what, what is life? I know, you, you know, we started the call, you're down in Florida. Um, what is life like now? Life is great. Um, my daughter, our daughter is getting married in April, so we're getting ready for that. Um, I'm now a private investigator. Um, I do uh, a lot of going back to the same stuff that I've always done and, and, you know, investigate crimes in some cases and do some security work and business is going great. Started a couple of years ago. Um, so you're still office. working, you're still active and life is, uh, so you haven't changed in terms of uh, your lifestyle. Like you're not retired, you're still, you're still hammering away. Yeah. And that's, that's awesome. Uh, one of the things that right away, and I think it was actually the first time I saw Dr. Fernandez, one of my questions to him, and this is in the middle of him explaining to me, we're going through the Whipple surgery, and it's going to sound kind of, kind of weird, I think, but maybe not. Um, I asked him, is it okay if I keep on working out? And he kind of looked at me kind of weird. And he said, <laughs> well, you're going, to be, you're going to be losing weight. I said, yeah. to be honest with you, Doc, I mean, you know, I'd like to stay in shape. I go, but most of the time I work out, it's for my head, it's not for my body. Yeah. I said, you know, it just takes me away from whatever it is that I'm thinking about or whatever I'm concerned with, and I just work out. And it's, you know, to me, it's like therapy. And he looked at me, looked at my wife, he said, work out as much as you want. <laughs> That's and, awesome. And continue to work out as long as you can. And I said, okay, Doc, I, I welcome that. And I remember going to the gym uh, with my chemo bag. I had my... I had, chemo that I had to take over a 48 hour period. And I remember going to the gym with a coat over my bag and try to work out. I mean, obviously I wasn't doing much, yeah. but it wasn't the fact of working out. It was, it was like I had my, I kept my routine going and it wasn't, you know, I didn't try, you know, to, to have any you know, self pity. I didn't try. I just kept it going. I just like, if it was okay, we're going to battle this, but I'm not going to stop doing what I do. And, and 
I did. And I think that helped me out a lot. Like I said, more mentally than anything. Almost like don't let the cancer rule your life, define your life, define who you are. You haven't changed. Your routine stayed the same. Um, I, I think there's a lot of similarities in someone else that we've interviewed. Um, and, and I'd love to connect you after the podcast. I'll, I'll connect you guys. But I think the working out is so, I mean, for the people that can, I, I think there, there's got to be, and I don't know if we would ever fund it, but there's got to be some studies out there, maybe just as cancer as a whole, that talk about the positives and the and the, the serious benefits of staying active while going through cancer treatment and not necessarily you know I'm not talking about going out and running marathons but you know like you said going to the gym for that mental because your mind is so powerful right and just being active and being involved in that activity I mean working out has a positive effect naturally right it has this endorphins that go to your brain and it tells you hey you're working out you're losing weight you're, you're gonna be more conscious about what you eat so there's that whole positive thing that's going on but when you're dealing with something in particular cancer as a whole but in pancreatic cancer just the same effect and there's something very interesting about what you just said Eddie you know um, that I just wrote here is you just don't let cancer dictate your life it is a part you know it's something you're battling but you did not let it dictate like hey I was working out I'm gonna still work out I'm gonna you know if I gotta bring the cancer bag I bring the cancer bag and you know that right there just walking through the door is mentally saying like hey I'm not giving up I'm gonna beat this thing so it's just so powerful to hear that and I'm thank you for sharing that uh, you know that information about continuing to work out because that's so powerful yeah no I agree with you uh, I just you know I, I go back to the Jim Valvano that that affected me even though obviously when when I heard that when I heard it live um, so many years ago yeah you know I had I had never met anybody in my family, nobody in my family, thank God, had ever experienced cancer. But to me, that was so powerful, just this message that, you know, don't give up, no matter whatever it is. Yeah, don't sure. ever give up, yeah. It's, it's an incredible battle, but just don't give up. And, and to me, that meant continue to do what I've been doing my whole life. And, and don't let the cancer, like you just said, rule what it is, who I am, or what it is that I do, uh, or, or what it is that I want to accomplish. And I did that. And and luckily, you know, I'm here. It's awesome. So powerful. I'm going to shift gears here because um, I do want to talk a little bit about your background, you know, with baseball. And I know you've got a book. We're going to give everyone uh, an opportunity to find the book. Uh, on, I know I, I've looked at it. It's on Amazon and various other sources. So what got you into, you went through your work through Major League Baseball and then you were on the, the investigation, but why did you want to write a book? What inspired you to write a book? Yeah, and you know, the, the book, is, it's called Baseball Cop. And yeah. it's um, unfortunately, and I feel this way even though I wrote it, um, it's not a very uplifting book if you're, if you're a sports fanatic. Um, and I was just recently talking to somebody about the book and I kind of feel bad because I'm, I'm a sports fanatic. Uh, I love all sports. It doesn't matter. I tried them all. I'm not necessarily good at any of them. But I tried them all at, at some level or another. I tried probably the one that I'm worse at is hockey. <laughs> but I tried that as a, I tried that as a child. I played 
you know, I played football at a, a pretty high level, not not that high, but and I have children that have all played. They're all better than I am. Yeah. But I, when I got involved in the business side um, of Major League Baseball as a security, and then as an investigator, security world, I was in, in Boston uh, working at Fenway Park, and then later on as an investigator of Major League Baseball, I found out that um, very similar, and we're going back to religion again, very similar to, um, I'm a Catholic, to the Catholic Church where everybody for, for centuries just took it for granted that they, everybody was doing the right thing. Yeah. We're all human beings and everybody doesn't do the right thing, unfortunately. And now, you know, over the last couple of decades, we found out that a lot of things that the Catholic Church was doing and continues to do uh, are not good things, no. to say the least. Well, the same applies to the major corporations such as Major League Baseball. Um, and I had, you know, front seat uh, view of what goes on behind the scenes. And and that's not what I signed up for. Um, when, when I was a security agent uh, for Major League Baseball working alongside with the security department at Fenway Park, I was the eyes and ears of the commissioner's office. And a lot of the things that I saw um, that I reported back to the commissioner's office to 245 Park Avenue were basically swept under the rug. Hmm. And you know what? And I became so disappointed in the way things were handled. On a couple of occasions, they asked me to retire from Boston and to join the security department. And I politely declined uh, because I wanted no part of it. Yeah. Um, and so... Fast forward, that started in 1999. You know, and don't get me wrong, I, I was very fortunate to see a lot of great things. I was in 2004, I was in charge of security for the for the Boston team in St. Louis, and I was there in the middle of the field when, you know, they won uh, the championship after 86 years of not, not having won it. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, a lot of things that happened in baseball positive, but the, the things that went on behind the scenes and that they swept under the rug were just, I just couldn't stomach it. So fast forward to 2007 when there's the, the Mitchell report to the Mitchell was asked by then Commissioner Bud Selig yep. to do an investigation on PED use in Major League Baseball. As a result of this report, one of the recommendations he made was to form a department of investigations that would work uh, independent of the Major League Baseball's labor department, who used to oversee the security department. And Mitchell, in his report, talks about the fact that, you know, when, when you're in labor, you have to negotiate for contracts with yeah. the Players Association. And therefore, it hinders your ability to investigate these players, because later on, you'll pay for it uh, when in the bargaining table. Yeah. You know, if you did something that the Players Association didn't like. So we were supposed to be independent. And at first we were, and then slowly but surely, um, that independency was taken away by the Labor Department. And it finalized with the uh, biogenesis investigation. Um, along the way, we encountered uh, and brought to the attention of Major League Baseball about the human trafficking of Cuban ball players from Cuba. Uh, by, you know, drug traffickers who used to bring them out of Cuba and speedboats and take them to Mexico and to the Dominican Republic and basically house them almost as, you know, as individuals that were kidnapped until somebody would pay for them. And they turned
turned a blind eye on that. And then, then the biogenesis investigation was the straw that broke the camel's back for me and for them as well, because they ended up releasing uh, my two bosses and myself soon after we had, um, you know, found out, uh, arrested and, and indicted and, and put away drug dealers in, in Florida, uh, as well as suspending 13 players. But they didn't like the fact that we were cooperating with law enforcement and we brought, uh, not only did we suspend the players, which wasn't really, you know, it's the, the, the use of PEDs, everybody has different feelings about it. But the fact that we went after, not only did, did we bring that out, that they were using PEDs, but we went after these drug dealers, uh, a guy by the name of Anthony Bosch was the head of the clinic yeah. uh, down in Florida, who was selling PEDs to high school kids who look up to these players. And that's one of the, the reasons why I, I think that no player should use performance-enhancing substances or should be allowed to, because they influence young kids and who knows, nobody really knows the effect of HGH or any of these other performance-enhancing substances. And, you know, the kids nowadays, more and more, you've seen them turn to it. Uh, in the end, um, they decided um, that we weren't, you know, hiding stuff like they wished us to, and so they let us go. And, and that moment when I was let go, I talked to my wife and I made the decision not, not to sign a non-disclosure agreement uh, with them and knew that this would be an uphill battle against, you know, a multi-billion dollar industry, which is very powerful, um, not only politically, but um, with law enforcement. And so I knew it was going to be an uphill battle. But like I said earlier, I'm the same with the cancer. I'm the type of person that doesn't like to give up and you know and I took this road I I didn't accept you know whatever they were trying to offer me for the to sign the non-disclosure agreement and decided that I wanted to tell the story and uh, we did uh, my wife agreed that you know she'd fight the fight with me as she always does and we've been fighting the fight so that we put the book out uh, unfortunately it didn't receive um, the publicity that we were promised it was going to receive, and I really can't talk about the reasons why it didn't because of legal uh, <laughs> matters. But um, so now we, you know, we, we're putting it out there slowly but surely. It's coming out. Um, recently, Sports Illustrated uh, came out with an article about an investigation that's going on out of the Justice Department into a lot of the subjects that I speak about in the book, including human trafficking. Uh, stealing from uh, young Latin American athletes uh, of their of their uh, signing bonuses by scouts, uh, American scouts in the DR, and these are young kids that live in. You know, you hear it said, but I actually witnessed that they live in cinder block homes with tin roofs with no running water, and these are kids that you know their families uh, duped into giving these scouts pieces of their signing bonus. Uh, thinking that it's the way you do business, and it's not. It's stealing. Uh, and so the book speaks a lot about, unfortunately, um, the the bad side of sports as far as the business goes. Um, and, you know, we obviously athletes do a lot of good things, including, I know, as we spoke earlier before we, the broadcast about, you know, some athletes that, that you know, take, you know, ran. 
ran with your flag and, and the pancreatic cancer flag. And, yeah. You know, and I, uh, obviously I, I can't thank them enough, but, and at the same moment, I just, you know, my background was in law enforcement and I didn't take the job to, to hide things. And I think I, it's just something that I want people to realize that they don't have to necessarily agree with, you know, with everything that's in the book, but I think it's enlightening if they read it. They'll find out what really goes on, um, you know, when, when the last pitch is thrown, when, when after they, they leave the clubhouse, a lot of things that go on that shouldn't be going on. And we call it America's pastime. And if, if we're proud of that, I think we should carry on as, you know, as Americans and we should carry on as legally and do everything above board as opposed to the way that it's really occurring now. So do you watch baseball still? Like, are you a fan of baseball or is it kind of going through this experience? I mean, I would imagine, like you said, I mean, you're, you had a, a, you had a front row seat, right? To everything because of the, the position you were in. So has that whole experience that you went through kind of turned you off on baseball as a whole, or do you still watch it from time to time or still a fan? Yeah, that's a question that's asked a lot. And the, the way I the way I answer that question is that I still love the sport. Yeah. I don't love I don't like, never mind love, the business of the sport. Yeah. So do 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 I watch it? I don't watch it as much as I used to. I'm more I'm more inclined to go watch a high school baseball game yeah. or yeah. a college baseball yep. game. Because I, I know the reason that they're playing. Yeah, the true. They're playing because they love the sport. They love the competition. They love, you know, and and I go back to, again, the use of PEDs. And uh, a lot of people, and I think more time goes on that you're seeing now a lot of people voting for these guys to get into the Hall of Fame. And, you know, whatever. But to me, sports are supposed to be, I mean, I, I brought up my kids playing sports because I think it teaches you a lot about life. It teaches you a lot about not giving up. It teaches yeah. you a lot about fair play. It teaches you a lot about competition. It, it teaches you not only how to learn how to win, but more importantly, how to accept losing um, and, and how to pick yourself up after you lose. And I can't see how, as a parent, you can teach it or you could you know lead your child into using something that you're cheating i mean what kind of a message that that send to that child or, or an athlete i mean what kind of a message does an athlete send not only to his children but to everybody's children that you know the, the way the way to, to, to get ahead is to cheat uh, i don't know maybe it's just me but i, I just i just don't think that that should be the way it goes yeah, it's. I mean, I, I've always said, and, and this is just everything, and uh, in in this country, whenever there's the amount of money that's involved, I think people people toe that line and those morals like go right out the window, man. And um, you know, if it means that you know someone's going to be in the record books for hitting x x amount of home runs and get a, a you know a, a twelve figure contract by doing that which is illegal and getting around it because there's no testing of the, of what they're taking um you know it, 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 when there's that kind of money that's involved and if you look at the history of baseball you know baseball was kind of in the dumps right like i mean i'm not a i'm not a 
baseball expert, but I know attendance was down, right? The contracts weren't really there. And then these guys were popping out home runs like it was like, you know, Rice Krispie treats. And what happened? Like the fans came back and like, you know, like the ratings and then the the money started to flow in. And, you know, and I, I think that's a... You know, we're in a very interesting time in the country, but I think in sports in general is, you know, even greater, you know, and it's just, uh, you know, it's just sad. And, and I think, though, Eddie, the, the correlation here, though, and I appreciate you telling as much information, and we're going to give our listeners where they can get Baseball Cop uh, at the very end. And I would recommend, uh, I've, I've read a bit of it online, and it's really fascinating to me. And I appreciate you and, and commend you for you know, having the gumption and the courage to do that, because I don't think it's probably wasn't an easy decision um, for you and your family, but the right decision, as you said. But it's an interesting correlation here, you know, in terms of mindset. You know, and how you dealt with that situation, and read the, and decided like, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put out a book. I'm gonna put the truth out there. And similar mindset, and how you dealt with the cancer, though. And that's why I kind of, like, I just wrote a note, like, you know, like, hey, you said the first 14 hours, and I'm sure like the first 14 hours when you were let go, were probably like, oh crap, like, what do I do now? And then you know, you realize like, hey, I'm gonna do the right thing, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, put this out there. And I'm sure there were a lot of other steps in between there to get to that point. But similar to the diagnosis, like, all right, we're gonna get through this, and I'm not gonna give up. I'm never gonna give up. No, that's 100% right, Dino. And then going back to we were talking earlier about continuing to do whatever it is that you do. Yeah. Um, I had started writing it on my own, and you know, luckily I, I have two accomplished writers that put together, you know, the, the garbage that I wrote <laughs> and, made it, and put it into in the English language. But I got to tell you that I did a lot of my writing in the hospital bed. A lot of my writing was done at the Mass General Hospital. Um, I remember it, and my wife talks about it all the time, I remember vividly, um, you know, being there and on all sorts of different antibiotics and for months. And I remember sitting there with a pad and a pen and just writing and writing and writing and writing. And I think that helped me again, no different than, than going to work out. That's, that was what at the time that was my job. That's what I was doing. And it just, you know, I wasn't about to quit and I just kept on writing and writing. And again, going back to what we talked earlier about, not letting cancer dictate what it is that you do or who you are. And in my case, you know, the fact that I could do this from a hospital that obviously helped a lot. But I did. I did. Most of my writing was done at the Mass General Hospital. That's so awesome that you shared that because I think that's really, I mean, you think about mentally, like you're not even thinking about like the cancer, you're thinking about this, which is a good thing, you know, like that's positive. That's so awesome. So, Eddie, in your book, you do mention your fight with pancreatic cancer. Yeah, I do, Dino. Um, there's a chapter in the book, which I, I think your listeners uh, would be interested in. It's uh, chapter 13, and it um, it goes through my whole, from, from the beginning when I was diagnosed and, you know, what my family went through and me contacting them and letting them know um, what, you know, what the fight ahead and... And it's uh, how everybody gathered together and everybody backed me up. It speaks about, 
all my friends and co-workers that stepped up big time and, you know, all that positive um, reinforcement that helped me get through this battle with uh, with pancreatic cancer. So I think it's a, it's a chapter that if, you know, if your listeners are interested in the book, I know I told you earlier that it deals with the corruption in baseball and major league baseball but it also it also follows my life story from my early years in cuba under uh, the castro regime to coming to the united states and what that was like and then it talks a little bit about my career uh in law enforcement and a couple of the different undercover operations that i did over the years but uh, i think a lot of people after uh, calling me after reading the book they all just about everybody was in agreement that the chapter that talks about the battle uh, with pancreatic cancer is probably the most moving chapter and, uh, and many of them said that it's the best chapter so I, I think uh, your listeners might be interested in that that's awesome with your history and your background Eddie and I don't know if you can share this but uh What's probably the craziest thing you ever ran into in your in your years of law enforcement? Wow, <laughs> that you can talk about, right? <laughs> it was, yeah, o- only because um, you know my my twenty nine years were pretty active from beginning to end. It wasn't like there wasn't a period where I slowed down. I mean, I was relatively yeah. young when I when I left uh, the police department, and I started at the age of twenty two. So it was, uh, and you know, we did a lot of, at first it was, there's a lot of, uh, for the first six years, a lot of uniform stuff and a lot of, you know, chases and shootouts. Mm -hmm. But then after that, um, and being involved in the prosecution of uh, illegal substances for for a long time, I did a lot of undercover work. So I said probably, you know, there was a couple of scenarios where, you know, you find yourself uh, by yourself, uh, meeting with uh, pretty big time drug dealers, um, and you know you got to try to keep your cool. As I said um, when, when we were talking earlier um, about you know when it comes time, it's it's either you know life or death, and you got to make a split second decision. I ran into a few of those. Um, you know, one in particular, uh, we were at a, a dinner table with a, a bunch of Colombian drug lords, myself and and the other individual who we were portraying to be um, import and export business people that we were going to be able to transport their uh, merchandises for them. And, and a couple of them got up and basically at the, for the dinner table and just said, we know you're cops and whatever. Uh, and luckily, Jeez. my partner and I, who had gone over this a million times, just sat there and kept eating and basically said, you know, basically said to them, well, if you think you are, all you got to do is walk away. And they decided, you know, to keep their hands in the pocket instead of the the back of their pants where they were carrying weapons and everything everything went fine. But, I mean, there was a lot of stuff like that that, that happened earlier, but it's just part of the, the line of work, and, and, you know, after a while, you get used to it. That's so fascinating in the sense of hearing you tell that story and the parallel of, like, you know, the journey with pancreatic cancer, Eddie, which I'm sure at that moment you didn't think about that, you know, going through like you're dealing with these criminals 
for all intents and purposes, right? For lack of a better term here, and then you realize, you know, you know that 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 a, mo- a blink of an eye that can change and go sideways, and you know that could happen very quickly and happens day in day out, I'm sure, across the world. And it's similar to the parallel with fighting this disease. So, you know, it's it's very interesting hearing you tell that story. And I know I called you out a bit on that just to like share some 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 of that with what you have done in the past, not on purpose, but um, I find it fascinating um, because I think there's a lot of parallels to how that prepared you almost, Eddie, for the fight of your life, which is pancreatic cancer. And by no means when you're dealing with the Colombian drug cartel or, you know, these criminals that, you know, they, they wouldn't think twice, regardless of whether you're an officer of the law to, to get rid of you or to kill you, you know, without thinking about it twice isn't any severe than battling pancreatic cancer. But I think there's a lot of there's a there's a quite a parallel there in that fight and in your journey. So, you know, not that you knew that this was preparing you for and not that we want to wish that on anyone, but it's so fascinating to me and so powerful. Yeah. And I have to tell you, as I've told you earlier, that um, I mean, I did that for a living and it's a split second decision and whatever. I mean, you know, you live with it and and whatever. But I really thought that, you know, and there are parallels, but I, I thought... Even though you're right, I think I was somewhat prepared for something like this. I, I think the fact that this is something that you know is in your mind all the time when you know once you're diagnosed. I mean, the, the dealing with an undercover capacity with drug—that's a split-second decision, and obviously, you know, it's it's a very important split-second decision. But it's something that once it passes, it passes. The pancreatic cancer, once you're diagnosed, once you're told—I mean, you live with that every single day, every minute of the day. So I, I, I there are parallels, but to me, uh, the, the, the battle with pancreatic cancer was 10 times uh, harder than anything I ever, you know, had an experience with uh, in law enforcement. I agree with you. I, I but it, it, in my, I guess maybe from an outsider's view, hearing you tell the stories and knowing where the story goes, this narrative, it's almost like it prepared you though. Like it's it's nothing that probably can compare to it, but it's like homework, I guess, you know, in some way. Maybe you didn't, you know, naturally. No, yeah, yeah, no, I agree with you. Yeah, I agree. Mentally, with you. I, mentally, sure. not physically. And then but, again, you know, I, I can't speak for other people, obviously, because I'm not in their shoes, but I, I, you're right. I think um, that my life experiences probably prepared me somewhat uh, for dealing uh, with this deadly disease. But again, I, um, I, I'm not trying to make a comparison. I really no. I, I know. Uh, I even know. though there are pa- even though there are parallels, uh, anybody not only not only people that are diagnosed and and this this is something that I feel very strong about. I, I think it not only affects us, but it affects everybody around us um, incredibly so. And I you know if it wasn't for my family and my friends, I'm not I'm not sure by myself I, I could have want to fight so you you got to surround yourself with positive people people that love you and i think that was a humongous help awesome i got two questions for you left here eddie um and my second to last question is what advice would you give to someone who has just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer given what you've gone through in your own personal experience i i think uh, my advice would be which you know it's 
and it's not, you know, I'm going to say it, but it was the same advice that the doctor gave, but I did exactly what they told me not to. <laughs> and, you know, they told me not, yeah, they told me not to. So I'm giving you this advice, but I know nobody's going to do it <laughs> to research. And of course you're going to research it. And, you know, what you're going to find out isn't good. But my advice would be, to, you know, to turn who, to whatever it is that that you feel most comfortable, uh, the people, uh, whether it be your God or whatever it is, and, and try to find, you know, a, a mentally a healthy place for yourself where, where you can find people that are going to be positive and not negative. I ran into a lot of that. I ran into a lot of people coming up to me and saying, oh, I heard you got pancreatic cancer. Oh, I had an uncle who just passed away. I had a, uh, and, you know, everybody, all the stories I would hear would be negative. Um, but, and I used to just like listen to them and try to block it out and, and you know, say, oh, okay, nice to see you and whatever, and walk away. Uh, and then try to completely put that behind me and then grasp and hold on to people that would tell me positive things. Hold on to, you know, the things that Dr. Fernandez said to me. Hold on to my kids telling me you've always been a fighter and you, you can't give up. And I think just looking for, you know, a place where you feel good. And it's very difficult to find when, when you get diagnosed with something like this. But I think you can't just be caught up in all the negativity. And there is a lot of negativity that accompanies pancreatic cancer. But you have to find a place where you believe in the people you're talking to and and you you try to fight to it the best you can it's powerful stuff eddie it's uh i have a term it's not rocket science but there is a science to it and i think the science of a lot of things in life are you know finding those positives and all of these things that come about you and it's not about staying everyone thinks oh i'm on top i got the job i got the car i got you know i'm, I'm living life but you get knocked down. No one ever stays up there, right? And whether it's sports, whether it's business, professionally, personally, it's life is ups and downs. And it's about finding those positives and getting back up when you get knocked down. Um, it, it's no so, question, so powerful. Last thing, uh, and we'd love to um, give our audience an opportunity where, where they can reach out to you, um, where they can buy the book, Baseball Cop. And if you want to give out your information, that's totally up to you. But this is your opportunity to share with our audience how they can find the book and how they can connect with you if maybe there's someone in the Boston area or maybe someone around the country that just is inspired by hearing what you had to say today and would love to talk to you personally. Yeah, I'm, I'm always available to talk to anybody um, concerning uh, anything to do with pancreatic cancer. I have, I'm not a big social media guy, but as a result of writing the book, I had to get a Twitter account. It's <laughs> at, at Deming Ed, D-O-M-I-N-G-E-D. Uh, and, you know, I, I, think it, I think I might have like a dozen followers. But anyway, <laughs> I, uh, I do have that now. Um, I'll, I'll give you... Um, my email address, if, if anybody, you know, wants to reach out to me, my email address is uh, RFA, Robert Sam Alpha, EDD, E-D-D-I-E-D, at AOL.com. And anybody that wants to, you know, talk to me, whether it be a family member or somebody that's been diagnosed, I'm always available. 
and you know any time of the day or night uh, email me and I'll get I'll get back to you certainly within 24 hours uh, the book can be can be bought on on Amazon you know you can go to most bookstores carry it uh, it's called baseball cop it's written by um, uh, Terry Thompson and Christian Red who were both uh, investigative sports reporters for the Miami I mean for the New York Daily News uh, they they did a great job uh, putting together my head scratch uh, in, into a book form, um, and I think again it's not you know it's not the most positive thing in the world. So uh, I wouldn't uh, recommend it if you if you don't want to find out the truth about what goes on in baseball. But if you do, I think you'll find it a very interesting read. There is a reality to it all, folks listening. Right? It's not all. Uh happy trails and uh you know championships there's a reality to to baseball and i think that's the one thing you said before uh in any big business right there's there's this unfortunate reality of it um and hopefully it's not as bad as in some cases but sometimes that's that's life you know and 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 i appreciate you having the courage to uh to tell that reality and and to uh, come on our podcast and share your story of inspiration and you know i i think you know, not letting cancer dictate who you are, never giving up and don't ever give up is so powerful, Eddie. So from all of us at Project Purple, hopefully our audience at home takes away so many powerful stories and messages in this podcast. And we thank you for being our guest on the Project Purple podcast. Well, I thank you, Dino, and continue great work. Um, I really appreciate what you do and what uh, your organization does. And um, I just can't say enough good things about what you're doing. Thank you, Eddie. And that's a wrap on the Project Purple Podcast.